there is so much going on i couldn't even tell you and i <laughs> i don't even know yeah there's something i mean just off the top of my head and it could be off of this like fifty thousand different uh chemical components when it comes to wine all right let's not talk about like, any of that <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> i want to be my current self from this point forward i want to learn how to play piano working with human beings drinking wine in the middle of the day i want to be a Driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. In today's episode, I interview Sterling Craigton, who is the winemaker at Cass Winery in Paso Robles, California. So Sterling is not the winery owner, but he's the guy hired by the winery owner to make all the wines for them. So if they make a blend, he's the one that chooses what percentages of what wines and what types of blends to be making. And even with a more straightforward wine, like just a Cab or a Merlot or something like that, he decides when the grape should be picked and how long something should stay in the barrel and all those decisions that impact what the wine is going to taste like. And Sterling is very, very good at at what he does. So Paso Robles, where Cass is, was named the Wine Region of the Year by Wine Spectator in 2013. In his winery, Cass was named the Central Coast Winery of the Year last year. So it's pretty safe to say that Sterling helps make some of the best wines in the entire world. And remarkably, he is only 30 years old, which is incredibly young for someone with that sort of success and just incredibly young in general for somebody in that industry. Um, as a side note, really quick before we get started, just want to let you guys know that Cass is a really, really awesome winery to visit and they have probably the best hamburger I have ever had in my entire life. And they got this beautiful outdoor setting to eat lunch um, and they give you a free wine tasting with your lunch whenever you order lunch. So um they didn't know I was going to say any of this, but you should seriously go to Cass Winery if you are in Central California because it freaking is like the best place to get lunch. So without further ado, here is Winemaker. Sterling, thanks so much for being on the show, man. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Dude, it's a pleasure for me to be here. So just to set the scene for everyone, I am at a beautiful, beautiful winery in Paso Robles, California on the Central Coast. And we're right now in your like winemaking cellar room area what, what is the proper term for where we are right now uh yeah it's just kind of the cellar a little my little office off the cellar okay so yeah there's all these barrels uh wine barrels around us and then we're in a little office here um so i think the first question that i want to start with just to get it out of the way because i'm sure this is on everyone's minds is like how do you get to become a winemaker what was your path because a lot of people love drinking wine i'm sure they wouldn't mind making it what right. did you do to actually make this your life um, yeah, there's a lot of different ways to get into it. Kind of the way I did, or I guess my story would be, um, I was cooking at a really young age and like really into it. Like did a full Thanksgiving dinner, every, all the trimmings, everything, you know, at age 13 by myself and thought that was kind of the path I was going to worked in a your couple. parents must've been like, so stoked. <laughs> like, what a great kid to have. Yeah. Uh, they kind of were, my mom was like, huh? like she had to work and they were to hospital. She had to work like Thanksgiving. I'm like, oh, I'll do it. And she's like, huh? And I came home and like everything was done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, my brothers used to like trade me things like, you know, we'd have chores and stuff. They're like, well, if you make dinner, like I'll take care of this stuff. <laughs> All right. Dude, that's awesome. Uh, and uh, so I worked in a couple like kitchens, you know, thinking about getting into it and kind of started to realize not only that uh, 
chefs can be assholes, but I kind of was too, you know, they get really <laughs> into it. And I would, I kind of, I think it was a good thing that I realized about myself is that like, I was not a nice person when I was in the kitchen. Yeah. And then, uh, but at the time I also wanted a degree. So I applied to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo as a food science major at, and I kind of still wanted to do that background, but wanted, like I said, a degree, but was thinking more chemistry. And so what they tend to do is... Oh, man, what a perfect thing. Yeah. Uh, what I was planning on doing is like a flavor chemistry and so or product development. So you're actually des- developing new uh, flavors for whatever, Doritos, you know, how they always come out with like random stuff. They have no idea what it is. Especially when we were kids. It was like every <laughs> crazy flavor every week. And it just seems like sometimes they try one. It's like, I just saw what, like biscuits and gravy or something. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I really want that. Yeah. Um, so that's what I thought about doing. Uh, moved up here. I was going to classes, loved it. Uh, it was you know, pretty awesome. It's one kind of misconception with uh, food science. People think it's like a cooking kind of thing. It's not true. It's a lot of chemistry, microbiology, uh, sanitation, safety kind of classes. And then uh, I decided just kind of like, I don't know, I was 20. And I was like, yeah, I, I just want to do something. So I just kind of uh, went to study abroad in Australia. And by study abroad, I mean, I surfed and mountain biked the whole time and <laughs> rarely actually kind of went to class. Yeah. Uh, and it was there where I was living outside of Hunter Valley, uh, which is Australia's oldest wine growing region. It's a couple hours north of Sydney. And since I was 20 there, I uh, went out and started wine tasting. And I was drinking wine before, but, you know, I'm in the dorms. And so then we're like, you know, you're drinking Franzia and you know, that kind of yeah, stuff. And it's totally. just, just a means to get drunk. Um, and then so I went out wine tasting and it just kind of started making sense as I was talking to the people actually behind the bar and getting a little more education on wine about the chemistry side of it and then all the sensory perceptions that i kind of had from cooking and stuff it made sense and so when i came back to cal poly and actually had to kind of buckle down in order to graduate uh i ended up taking on more classes to study wine and viticulture and luckily enough my food science degree is what a lot of people did for winemaking before there was a major Mm -hmm. and so i picked up a minor in wine and viticulture dude i love that story it's so good because it's it's a good life lesson, right? That you you don't always have to very deliberately steer the ship of your life. You yeah. can like let things unfold as they should mm-hmm. in like in in whatever way they should in front of you. Because there's so many like uh, I guess a lot of people listening to this wouldn't know this, but Cal Poly, there's a lot of people that go to that school with intentions in mind of like I want to make wine one day. Right. And the fact that you were not one of those people and that you mm-hmm. went to Australia so that you could hike and mountain bike and do all these other things. And now here you are living not that far away from where Cal Poly is it like a kick ass winery making wine for a living. Um, when it wasn't this, it, it wasn't this hardcore focus of yours. You, you like allowed it to happen rather than like, I need to make this happen from like every step of the way. Right. And that's a couple of tough things when it comes to uh, Cal Poly, because it's one of the few schools that you have to be declared like as a freshman. So either people stick with what they're doing, even though they might not find interest in it or end up dropping out or take a long time to graduate. And then on top of that, it only became a major while I was there. So I didn't ever, didn't even really necessarily have that option. So I fell into it like kind of right at the sweet spot. Hmm. Interesting, man. Yeah. Cool. Um, how important do you feel like 
schooling is versus on the job stuff like so you actually got to take classes in viticulture something mm-hmm. a lot of people that that may wine in the past like never got to do right. um did, was any of that like worth a crap at all or like or is it just like on the job is where it's at i actually get asked that question a lot and it is a really good one because there is especially like seller work there is a lot that you learn on the job and a lot of it is uh, ways of making wine it's uh, tricks of doing things it's educating your palate and so a lot of those kind of things that you might not get taught in school but it is a really good background to have and i think as a winemaker especially a younger winemaker uh, i probably wouldn't be doing it if i did not have that schooling and a lot of that is to understanding the chemistry how things work why things work and when shit hits the fan, how to take care of it and why it's going on. Okay, I was just going to say that. That winemaking is this really, and I, I guess probably making a lot of different alcohols and food and whatever, is this really interesting blend of, it's like an art and a science all at the same time. Right. And I guess the school piece is the science piece and the on-the-job piece is a lot of the art piece. Right. And so it's a lot of... Um, like I said, with the chemistry things, how things are going to interact, or if I um, change this, even something simple as temperature while the wine's fermenting, and or do this add, how those things are going to adjust. And part of it is that you have this prediction chemically what's going to happen, but then a lot of it comes through experience of taste. Yeah. So at what point did you start to get this experience and get this taste and this ability to do this? Uh, so right after I graduated, I started at a uh, winery here in Paso that is no longer around, but uh, started as an intern and then just kind of you know slowly moved my way up. And so it was just a lot of hands-on education that uh, learning the the working aspect, the seller aspect, and then uh, also spent a lot of time out in the vineyard doing pruning and you know doing a lot of the grunt work, and that's what I still do. With that first job, what do you think are some of like the most important things that you learned on the job that maybe you weren't expecting to learn that are like huge lessons for someone making wine? Uh, things you probably wouldn't necessarily expect, like uh, driving a forklift. You gotta be, you gotta, <laughs> gotta be, be good at that. Yeah, you gotta be like a ninja when it comes to forklift because uh, if you're moving stuff around and stacking these barrels, uh, you know you might have thirty thousand dollars with even more than you know, <laughs> if you're carrying our a reserve around that's like a hundred thousand dollars you might have stacked up on your forklift and, yeah yeah it, it can be a little nerve-wracking i guess i mean more <laughs> with the uh with like the tasting of wine and stuff like that like what sorts of on the job uh yeah just like with um tasting and growing and making did you learn <laughs> on that first job uh i think you start learning how uh chemical interactions so like we do it tends to do like acid adds it's very common in california to do uh add tartaric acid natural grape acid to wine and how those things can incorporate and so it might seem like too harsh to begin with and then you kind of get the years down the road and you see how things can change and so you might seem like this is too much or this is too little right off but you know, trying Wait to a second! It. You just blew my mind. So I didn't know that this was a thing, but I know that a lot of wines, because like my budget for wine, I love drinking wine, but my budget is not very high. So right. like so <laughs> many wines taste like, for lack of a better term, they taste too young to me. Right. 
And if I were to be having one of these two young wines and they were to tell me, oh, we placed extra acid into that wine, I'd be like, why did you do that? Like, I can taste that. I know you taste mm-hmm. it. Like, it tastes really tart or it tastes, there's a lot of like tannin or whatever it is. Um, why? Yeah. Why the hell are people doing this? Is, is there some benefit to doing that? Yeah, it's a, and that's where it really comes to not only your science, your pH acid levels kind of thing, but also how it affects your palate, like how it, it tastes. And so actually what you kind of mentioned, you're like, oh, I don't know, like tannin. So even by adding some acid, just the way that chemically reacts to your tongue, you can perceive more tannin, Hmm. which is something. I mean, it took me a few years to to learn. So it is beneficial. And unfortunately, there are some places, a lot of big places who you're trying to create a uniform product year to year for generally cheaper wines uh, tend to go based on numbers and not necessarily taste what do you mean numbers what do you mean when you say uh, chemistry so generally your two biggest ones are your ph or i should say three uh your ph your ta which means the amount of acid that's in the wine and then your alcohol levels okay so you're saying that they if you're if you're trying to mass produce a wine and make it fairly inexpensive that there is just a lot more straightforward chemistry to that than there is any artwork uh generally there'll be a lot of blending and stuff that goes into that but they want it to be you know sound i mean like a chemically sound biologically sound so nothing like starts growing and so because they, they have a lot to lose if something starts happening yeah but, yeah so those kind of things totally interesting man let's talk about more of the technical aspect of making wine how long could it should it and is it usually left inside of a barrel for so that really comes down to style uh like that's where wine making style i guess comes on uh so what I do, let's say our earliest stuff would be our whites. And so our stainless steel fermented whites don't really see any barrels. So that's actually a relatively short turnaround. Uh, it's really cold ferment, so it takes about a month. And then it only sits in tank for another few months before it gets bottled and then released another few months later. So you're talking probably about a you know five to six month turnaround. And they're, you know to go had you said them released a few months later what if you were to just have that from the bottle like one day after it was put in the bottle what would that like how much is the bottle doing for it uh it actually does a lot and not really something i can explain and it's there's different terms for it but most people know it as bottle shock and it is this uh kind of the best way i explain it like i said earlier wine is a living thing and so if you you know basically take it from the tank you're pulling it through these hoses through a pump you know shoving it into this bottle and it gets all shooken up it gets pissed off <laughs> and so that's you know it gets pissed off it tastes funky for a while and it usually takes uh depending on the wine you know it takes a few months to get over that that's so funny it's like shaking up a can of soda you gotta then just like let it, let sit, it sit for a while exactly. before you open it up it's actually a really good way to put it interesting yeah. um all right so yeah let's move on to more of the uh, technical aspects of making the wine now so what are just these steps uh, as a winemaker that you take with making a wine so the grapes are on the vine what next right that's actually where everything starts and kind of what we go through here because we're in a state vineyard uh our kind of motto is great wine starts in the vineyard and so i, I jokingly say it's about 90 percent mother nature and 10 percent me not trying to screw it up because it's just kind of like i said this is natural process it is now just kind of honing it in a little bit you know it's a you know kind of like herding cats starts out in the vineyard out there i go out uh season generally starts uh about middle august generally september but we've been in drought hot california summers so out there i go out 
pick some grapes. I uh, check some of those chemistry levels like I was talking about. Most importantly is the sugar level. So the sugar level is an indication of the potential alcohol that's going to be. So you have a whole bunch of instruments that you use to do these tests? It's actually quite simple. It's, a, it's called a refactometer. Just hold it up to the sunlight and it kind of reflects the amount of sugar that's in there versus the water. And, uh, you don't even have to like crush the grape. It just I, yeah, I do. Just kind of squeeze it on there, huh. and then a lot of it comes to the taste too. So I go out there, kind of walk around. I visually check stuff. I eat some of the grapes. Uh, you can tell a lot by the biology of the plant, and then we kind of start making the decisions about when to pick and where to pick, and bring all that stuff in. At uh, which time, if we're let's say going with red grapes, they get kind of crushed up, and everything goes into the tank except for the stems. And so you got skins, seeds, juice, all in a tank. And uh, chuck some of that yeast in there. And basically it starts fermenting. Let me ask you a question about that really quick. So it's really interesting to me that part of it is just like the good old uh, taste test, right? Like mm-hmm. you tasting it, deciding like how sugary is this? How sweet is this grape? Like is this a good time to be pulling these grapes? That's the type of thing that to me, how they talk about like 10,000 hours of like repetition and like needing to do something over and over again. Yeah, some good at something until you've done 10,000 yeah. hours. Yeah. And yet that is a thing that you can only do once a year. And like maybe, yeah, yeah. like the guy with the next winery over can invite you over and be like, hey, taste mine. And now taste. So it's yeah. like it can happen a few times. But I would imagine like once it gets to the beginning of the year and you go to taste your grapes, it's not like your your palate is like like how keyed in are you to like what a sweet grape should taste like or what a regular grape should taste like or Uh, that's something that i mean all of this i feel like i'm still learning and that's actually what i love about this job is because i'm fairly young to be a winemaker so i'm always still you know kind of testing myself playing around in the cellar trying new things going to seminars going to do all this stuff and it is incredibly nerve-wracking to be making decisions that at that time, you won't see till three years down the road. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> and, it, you, and a lot of it's like, well, I think, like I said, I think this is going to do. You start developing your taste and this should happen. But hell, you don't don't necessarily know. And especially when you send it off to these like competitions or reviews and, you know, have people buying it and stuff. You don't you made that decision three years ago. Yeah. And so it, it gets a little nerve wracking. And so that's uh, something I've kind of learned is to actually just trust my taste. Yeah. Before we get back into the making the wine part, have you ever had a wine then not turn out on you? Like, have you ever waited, you know, two, three years and then you taste something and you're like, shit, like, what did I do? <laughs> no, never has <laughs> happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's, you know, certain things, of course, you're like, ah, oh, that's, you know, it's a little bit bummer, but there's nothing, you know, off the top of my head. There's... It always makes good box wine. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, you can, honestly, there are a lot of barrels uh, that have dumped and, but that's, you know, we're a smaller place making high-end wine and you got to make those sacrifices. Oh my gosh. Please sacrifice it into my mouth next time. <laughs> I can't believe you just dumped them. Yeah. Unbelievable. It's, it's a little depressing, but it's got to be done. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. All right. So um, once you've tasted the grapes, you decide it's going to be a good time to use these grapes. What next? Yeah. Uh, so we get in the tank, uh, get it start to uh, ferment. And there's a lot that kind of goes into that uh, temperature controls. Uh, with reds, we do what's called pump overs or punch downs. Basically, uh, like I had mentioned, heat and CO2 are a byproduct of the fermentation. So all those skins and seeds, like I talked about, rise to the top. But that's where you get all the color and a lot of the flavor from. And so that's got to be mixed up a couple of times a day. 
So you kind of take the wine, that's the fermenting wine from the bottom, put it back over the top, get the skins and seeds mixed in there. Uh, depending on your style, like I said, that could be anywhere five days to a week to three weeks to a month. It really depends on your style. Hmm. And uh, When you say style, you mean like varietal of grape or you mean how you're even wanting this exact wine to take to come both. out? So I'll adjust it uh, depending on the type of wine that's going to be made from it, the varietal. And then also, yeah, what winery? Who's the winemaker around? That's why you can have a couple of reasons why you can have 300 wineries around us is uh, the way it's grown in the vineyard and then the way it's made in the cellar. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to take another little time out here for more questions. <laughs> so you say like the way it's grown. I This is something that's always been fascinating to me is people always talk about the... Uh, ter- I'm going to pronounce the term incorrectly, but like terroir, terroir, whatever, yeah, like terroir, the, the ground, yeah, yeah. the ground. We'll just say uh-huh. the ground and uh, in the area and the weather and all that. Like you said, California has been in a drought. All these areas, all of these wineries are within whatever, like 20 square miles of each other in the area. People that want wines from Sonoma or from Napa or whatever it is. There's so many wineries like next door to each other and they taste so different and they'll be, they'll both be cabs. Like, right. How the hell is that happening when they both, it's like how much different can the terroir be, you know? It's like they're right next door. It is ridiculous how much stuff goes into it. And, well, to start with the terroir, which literally translated means dirt, but it pretty much means the growing area where your vineyard is. So Paso Robles, we originally uh, was just known Paso Robles just recently kind of divided up into 11 different sub AVAs. AVA means the uh, area that it's grown. And so basically what shows up on the bottle. And that's because over, if you go West side, kind of up in the Hills where it's close to the ocean, you get a lot cooler breezes, you get a lot more rainfall so they can get about, you know, 30 something inches of rainfall. If you come out to the East side, kind of where we are, uh, you might only get 15 inches of rainfall through the year. So uh, that, Obviously, influences a lot, stresses the vines a little more, uh, tends to be a little hotter. And so those are big impacts. And then what you're growing. Uh, so you got to kind of adjust everything to your vineyard site to grow the best possible things. And uh, for your example of cab, it's kind of funny because I have this might get start getting too technical. I have four different clones of cab on this vineyard. Hmm. And clone pretty much means they all are technically cabinet uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, but they each one has a little subtle different flavor. Or you know, uh, you know, one might have more tannin, one might seem a little fruitier after it's done, and so it's kind of those choices too that make a difference. Yeah, totally. I guess like if you if you go and get a a dog, you know, like I have a Chow Chow. There's like black Chow Chows. There's light Chow Chows. There's, you know, but yeah. they're all Chow Chows. So, you know, just because you're a Chow Chow doesn't mean you look the same as the other one. Right? I right. guess just because you're a cab, you don't taste the same as the other one. What is that the main thing that is, ma- I guess also you said time and all those things. Is that the main thing that is making one winery's cab taste different from the winery next door? Is like what clone they got. That'll make a big difference, but it's also their viticulture practice. So how they're growing are they you know um yeah are are they fertilizing at different times who knows there's a lot of different impacts that can do this and there's that's why you have a lot of different uh i think trends that people are becoming familiar with now in the wine industry so i mean there's um organic 
there's uh, sustainable, there's biodynamic, there's who knows. <laughs> yeah. So there's, that's what people are starting, I think, kind of ask for us. Well, how has this grown? And that's kind of the, I think, trend in general with not only wine, but food. Yeah. yeah. Which has got to be nice, I imagine, for you is the one. Well, nice and annoying for you as the winemaker that people have a lot more questions for you. It's like they, they care about what you're doing now. You right. know? And it's definitely a big impact where we are in you know, California, especially pastorals. It's like the red sector. It's like if you look on a map of the drought, we're deep red right here. So, yeah. Uh, and we are a sustainable vineyard. And so there's we're always trying to find new ways to conserve water, to kind of do things to better our, our vineyard and the area around us. Yeah. All right, dude. So uh, let's move on to the next step in the winemaking process. So now you've mixed up your grape juice a whole bunch. Yeah. So after it's done uh, fermenting all the way, like I said, in with the case of the reds, you got now technically wine because it's fermented juice, but you got all the skins, seeds, and everything in the tank. So you drain it off, drain all that wine into one tank, and then uh, you're left with, uh, depending on how how big your tank was or how much wine you were doing uh, a lot of skins and seeds in there. And so generally that involves uh, me jumping in the tank and digging it out. Now this is where I think a, a lot of people think I sit behind my desk and just drink wine all day. And even though that is the best part of the job, <laughs> it is actually kind of physically demanding and uh, gen- especially during harvest. And so uh, this is one of them. You dig out a tank uh, originally with um, I've done think some of the bigger tanks i've done originally started with 25 tons worth of grapes in there Damn. so you got all that skins and seeds in there then i'm shoveling all of that out at which point some of that will go to a press and that's where you might heard terms uh this is my free run juice so it's theoretically supposed to be the better juice is the stuff that didn't go into the press and that's just kind of a lot of juice that's still i, I say juice but it's technically wine locked into those skins and kind of gets pressed out everything gets uh maybe blended together or separate once again, depending on style, it stays in a tank or goes to barrel. Ours uh, goes to barrel and goes through a, for red wines, a secondary fermentation. And it's called a malolactic fermentation. Converts malic acid. So if you've had like a Granny Smith apple, you know, when you bite into that, you get that really tartness on the back of your jaw and that kind of like, you know, really acidic bite. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's in grapes. It converts the acid to lactic acid. And so you wouldn't really expect that like milk, lactic acid is acidic but it actually kind of is but it's really soft and smooth mm-hmm. and so that's part of the aging process because that might take another you know month or two months in barrel when you throw them in the barrel like that are you adding anything else into the barrel with it to like m- help that process along or you just put the wine in nothing else um i will add stuff to help encourage it once again this is everything i kind of talk about is natural you know but there are things that we add to encourage it so like i said if i just threw it in a tank it would start fermenting um, but I probably wouldn't be sure, even though I've actually done what it's called wild or native ferments here. I've done it and they ferment completely and it's fine. But then I use uh, commercial yeast uh, to kind of express certain aromas or something to go from there. So it's the same with the secondary fermentation. Okay, cool. So that's basically the last part. Then you're leaving it in the barrel for a while, you pull it out and you throw a party. Yeah. You cool. got to you got to drink it as it goes to you know make sure it's tasting all right nothing goes bad. Okay, cool. In a little bit um we'll get to the blending part, but before we get there 
If it is just what, so you are the winemaker here. You're not the owner of the winery, and I, that's why I wanted to interview you because at some point later on down the road, I'll, I'll interview a winery owner. But I, I really wanted to interview a winemaker first, and mm-hmm. as somebody that you are being paid as an employee to make wine for them, when you're just making like. Do they even have you just make a cab or just make a Merlot or are you only doing blends for them? So it's kind of a, a really open-ended question because a lot of the stuff is, yes, I'm, I am their winemaker. So I'm making the wine style that they would like, right? if that makes sense. And so whereas I might like to do random blends or you know kind of do that stuff for myself, uh, it's you know kind of keeping with what, the structure of what they're they're looking for okay okay and then but like i said we're a smaller place so i still do mess around with stuff and uh they're okay with it like <laughs> steve uh cassie always says he's like if because people ask like oh well do you guide him on his blends or taste this kind of stuff or you know you know dictate the the wine he's like no if if i had to do that that means i need a new winemaker <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> totally so what they'll maybe be like hey we want a grenache syrah and then it's up to you to determine what's going to be a good Grenache Syrah for them. Right. Okay. And there's been times where I might go there like, Hey, uh, up with, I, I kind of blend this up or, you know, make this wine. Yeah. And, uh, they're just cool with it. So that, that's the thing that totally makes sense to me. You getting paid for, right. Is making a blend because this is this very like technical thing of tasting them at different points in the barrel and then mixing them together. When we'll go into your whole job in that mm-hmm. regard later. But like, if you're just making a cab or something, isn't that just like how well? Uh, how good was your farm this year, my man? You're a grape farmer. Like, how good were those grapes that you grew? Yeah. And like, that's what's really going to determine this cab being good. How much can you do? I guess is the question. How much can you do for a cab mm-hmm. if the grape itself w- <clears throat> was not that great? That's where yeah, there's a lot of certain doctoring that can kind of go along with it, and there's not a whole lot you can do. Uh, but there are, you know, certain, there's natural products that we can use in the winery. So a lot of the stuff we use is naturally derived from the grape. And that's why there isn't like an ingredients list on the back of a wine label, uh, not only because it's alcohol, but because you can't really do anything that's unnatural. Right. And so now with like a lot of the science that we have, they can say, you know, pull, uh, tannin from grape skins and that kind of stuff and so maybe if this is coming out super green you can add that back to it and that might pull some or change the uh the way it tastes in uh your mouth and that kind of thing so there are certain things you can do uh but yeah i mean that's why you have once again we come back to the number of wineries and stuff and why everything you know has the dates on it. it's vintage dependent and people say oh this was a really good year or you know this yeah you know this year was okay is because it is kind of up to mother nature and then just trying to nudge it along yeah yeah so let's talk about the blending process now which i imagine as somebody who's employed as a winemaker this is like a large part of what you're employed for and where you earn your money as it were um so anyone that's had a bottle of wine over like 10 or 15 dollars They've seen on that wine label where as opposed to just saying red blend or as opposed to just saying GSM or uh, or like a Merlot cab that it says 41% Merlot, 50, I'm trying to do my math in my head, 50, whatever that would be, 59% yeah. Cabernet. How, are you at like, uh, let's say 40, 60 
and then you like taste it and you're like it needs one more percent and then you go and you get one like how how are these numbers decided uh it's a combination of things uh unfortunately there are some uh inventory things that you kind of gotta oh, take yeah, in mind that makes sense <laughs> yeah but that is not this the the goal line yeah there's a lot of other things that go into it and what's nice once again that you know kind of being a smaller place and but having enough inventory and enough different wines uh for instance uh, kind of when you walked in earlier i've been blending our uh, our cabernet uh but there are six different wines that have cabernet in it and so i kind of go through and have to choose where they go and we're small enough where i only had 83 barrels a cab which Mm. is a little extensive but i go through and taste every single barrel and then decide where each barrel goes to and so that's you know the the nice and thing about i don't know how to put this but like uh i guess the difference between some lower price bottles and some really higher stuff is that there is a lot of dedication and taste that goes into this Mm -hmm. and part of that is the barrel so that is kind of also a part of it is a flavor thing. So it's sitting in um, for our bigger reds is sitting in barrel for almost two years. And so the type of barrel that you use the company or cooperage that you use can really impact the flavor on it. So how are you mixing these? Are you mixing them in it? So like those wines, mm-hmm. again, let's say like 40, 60 or something. So those are nice round numbers that I'm not going to forget and get confused <laughs> on. Um, are you mixing those in a glass? So do you have like a little uh, thing that you stick it, you pop open, you have like a cork in the barrel, you pop it open to the Merlot one, you pull out, uh, again, I'll try to use round numbers, you pull out six ounces of the Merlot, mm-hmm. put it in a glass, then you walk over, you pull out four ounces of the cab, you put that in a glass, now you swirl those around, that's 60-40, and then you taste that and you're like, is that good or was that not good? Is that like how you're doing it? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, honestly, there's not, uh, when it comes to the blending, it's not a whole lot of science. It is mainly just taste and it's going through and tasting these things. Like I said, it's almost two years in barrel. So I'm tasting this as they age. And so there's already kind of like something in the back of my head. That's always, you know, what? I think this one's going to go with this. One. You have like a history with this wine. Yeah. And so it is definitely, I mean, these are all your spices. This is your pantry. And so it's like, well, what do you want to do with the main course? Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Man, that was a great analogy. Um, all right, cool. So, like, talk through us about like the the story, if you will, of blending like a more complex wine that you blended, or like a difficult wine that you blended. Or um, actually, this last one I was working on just was a little bit tough. Uh, so, our reserve is generally a Cabernet based, and like I said, I've kind of had this history of the wines, and I've really liked our Syrah. And the straw is like awesome. It's going to be coming out really well. I kind of want to do an Aussie blend. And I'm like, I want to make a cab Syrah for our uh, reserve label. I'm like, I think that'd be really good. And then I just started messing around with it. And I realized that the straw was actually way too powerful. It was so impactful that you couldn't actually pick up the cab at all. And then so I started dialing that back. And so I dial it back, dial it back. And then I get to this point where I'm like, oh, okay, now it needs a little something else. And so, like I said, it's kind of the pantry. I'm like, yeah, actually, a little bit of spice might be nice. Just like a, a, a little touch of spice. And I'm like, well, I got the more vedra. More vedra has got this like a little white pepper to it. Throw a dash of that in there. Okay, now it's now it's going where I want. Mm. Uh, but it is 
definitely a conflict because they're like I said, this is barrel select. So changing one barrel can really influence the flavors. And then going from there, there's a lot of stuff that uh, I might, you know, make it one day and then, okay, you know, I'll make a bottle of it. I'm going to let this sit for a couple of days. I'm going to revisit it. And then it's, you know, it's that mood you're in or that's what you ate earlier that day. No, this isn't what I wanted at all. Yeah. It, it can be uh, a little tricky and there, there definitely comes to a point where it's like, okay, this is done. And that's usually when it comes to bottling. Bottling is uh, really stressful, but at the same time, you just kind of have to learn to be like, okay, it's done. You know, this is the final product and I just hope people love it. Yeah, totally, man. When you're, when the wine's done, it's time to like put it in bottles or mm-hmm. there time to taste it even out of the bottle. Are you consulted with the pricing and is pricing almost a result of the taste of the wine? Like if you, how I said, like if you ever made a bad wine before, if you made a wine and you, you know, you spent years making it and it comes out not very good. If it's not very good, are you just like, shoot, we got to price this thing at like 10 bucks and that's all there is to it. And if you taste one and it's like, it's really good. Are you like, oh dang, we could charge like 75 bucks for this wine or is it about the availability of that wine? And even if the wine is not very good, if there's not a lot of it, you're going to charge a lot for it. That's where it comes to your whole, uh, you know, marketing department and sales and stuff. I don't want to deal with, um, because I've worked at places like that, but here I'm going to say no. I mean, basically we have kind of a set price for our wine and I mean, if it's bad, I'm not going to serve it. I'm not going to bottle it. I'll, sell it off or dump it like i said oh my i oh it's like <laughs> i i cringe and grab my microphone hard every time you said you i need to give you my phone number and next time you're thinking about that i'll take all of it and then i mean if it's good and if it's like the and last year the 2014 vignette that was a like san francisco international wine competition it was best vignette 94 points uh like uh, yeah best of class yeah. we sold it for 24 bucks didn't change after that you know just kind of the way we like to roll with those things yeah like just because it got an award no we've been trying to make the best wine we can so why should that change the price on it yeah so in that regard it is almost it's prior decided so like how many of these grapes do we have how much was this clone how much did this grape cost and we need to recoup that right and so yeah a lot of it will go into your vineyard costs and then your bottling costs and all this kind of things and then the, the aging that's why generally our bigger reds are a little pricier because they're sitting for barrel in two years and then we're holding them in bottle for almost a year. So you're paying a lot just for that time and space. Yeah. And so that's why they tend to be a little bit pricier than say quick turnarounds. So this area that we're in right now, um, Paso Robles, Paso Robles, as the white man calls it around here. <laughs> yeah. uh, you got to say it as white uh, as possible. Uh, <laughs> <right here. laughs> yeah. It's Paso Robles. Yeah. Um, and Paso Robles was rated the number one wine region by wine spectator last year. To what extent do you think that that is because of the type of people that are making wine here right now? And to what extent does, is there something like special about the land here? Like how influential is your land with the wine that you're making? I think it's a combination of things. First of all, it it is definitely the growing region. It's, uh, it's amazing. It's the hot days, the huge swing in temperatures. I mean, during our hottest part of summer, it'll be over 100, but then we have a 40 to 50 degree temperature swing. So at 
night is dropping back down to 60 or 70 at night. It's uh, great for the vines. Everything around here, especially on the west side, it's what we refer to as calcareous soil. So there's a lot of limestone in it. This is, uh, it's almost exactly the same as like Rhone region of France. So it's a huge part of it. And then I think on the winemaking aspect is we weren't really, we were fairly young. So we weren't really stuck in a a way, even though Napa was kind of young, you know, they were like sticking with traditional stuff of uh, this is Cabernet and this is Chardonnay. And um, so we started growing some different things and then started, you know, blends became a huge thing. And people were like, oh, well, why'd you blend it that way? Because it tasted good. yeah so i'm not you know and i think that's actually what kind of started putting us on the map is that it was the the rome kind of varietals that we grow here and that you have these like really interesting blends and that like just kind of like well we're gonna do whatever we want because it tastes good what is the thing that may like that makes a wine good like one all right like i said my budget is not very high so i'm usually having like sub ten dollar bottles of wine Mm -hmm. and they always taste like best case scenario, like fruity and tart or something. And, and then I come down here to the central coast where my mom has a house and I'll have wines in my mom's house. And I'm like, holy crap, like this is really good, you yeah. know? And it tastes it like such a level of maturity that none of the wines that I purchase for myself have. Like they're so smooth and they're so calm. Mm-hmm. Um, what makes those qualities in a wine that I think are like, I don't, I don't have a really refined palate where I can say, oh, this wine has this characteristic and this right. wine tastes like this thing and this thing. But I can certainly say, wow, that's like a, like I said, smooth and mature and all these things versus some like tart, young $5 bottle of wine. What makes a wine get those characteristics? So it's going to start out with, yeah, where it's grown. And that's kind of where we come back to past roles, the area and why we can have so many places versus, uh, and, a lot of that cost goes into actually buying the product, you know, buying the fruit. And so if you go out to, let's say the central Valley, if you're out in kind of Fresno area of California, they have tons of vineyards, huge stuff, but the wine is, that's most of the stuff you're drinking, like jug wine or, you know, your box wine stuff. Uh, And so obviously your better growing region does better wines and then, but the cost of it and the amount. So, let's say in our vineyard i generally a high quality vineyard will produce about three tons per acre that's because it's the way it's pruned it's the way it's produced because the less fruit you have the more concentrated the more flavorful that fruit is going to be whereas if you go out to fresno and stuff they might produce 15 tons an acre whoa so So it's not like a small difference it's a gigantic difference you got the sugar and water without much flavor yeah Yeah. man that totally makes sense Mm -hmm. That's like, I mean, no different than an organic vegetable versus a non-organic vegetable where you'll get an, an apple that's non-organic and it's like gigantic. And then you'll get like a small organic apple and the flavor of the small organic apple is is amazing. A little you know, intense. and it's like, well, yeah. yeah, that same amount of flavor that's in that giant apple is in this tiny one. It's like it's more concentrated, you know? Exactly. All right. I was going to ask you what makes a bad wine, but I guess that really checks that box. That. Is definitely a good part of it. Yeah. Um, What is the best part about being a winemaker? You mean besides being surrounded by alcohol? Yes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Or if that's it, that's fine. (laughs) Uh, 
I like coming to work. I mean, I think that's it. I've worked some bigger places, but a place like this, this is almost that borderline between, well, if I wasn't doing this, what would I would be doing? Well, I'd probably be wanting to do this. (laughs) It's like, this is kind of a hobby. I just happen to like get paid for it. Yeah. And of course there's things, I mean, I I always tell people like almost anytime you have to show up for a job for work, then it is a job. And of course you're going to get frustrated and there's other bureaucracies and stuff that you got to deal with. But I mean, I just, I like doing this. Yeah. So How much thing. wine do you get to drink every day? Uh, or, or do you, I'm sorry, I should let me rephrase. Yeah. How much wine do you have to drink every day? That's what I was going to say. Get to can sometimes be a, a burden. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's wind this thing down and give people some advice. Um, so first, what are, um, what are some pieces of advice for people that are going to be at home having a glass of wine with themselves tonight? And they want to um, get some like tasting tips. What are some things that we could be trying to taste? That's a tough question. As far as education, I mean, that's just back to the snobbiness aspect. It's that's not true. I mean, you need to kind of trust your own taste buds. If you like something, don't let someone tell you that's not what you should be drinking. I think that's kind of BS. But at the same time, expand your palate too. So try new stuff. I mean, if and. I've gone through the same cycle that a lot of people have. And that's usually I mean, when I was younger, like I said, I was drinking Franzi out of the bag and then, uh, you know, started with some sweeter wines and then kind of went to whites and then light reds and then big reds. And now I'm actually kind of coming. I've been coming back around where, yeah, those big reds are nice at times, but I look, I prefer the elegance, like I said. And so, you know, that might become back to lighter reds and even appreciate higher end whites, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I guess the, yeah, the bottom line for the advice is trust your palate, but also explore. Yeah, man. Great advice. Um, and then second for advice is if somebody wants to get a job like this, what advice would you give them? Um, you got to jump into it and just kind of start it's probably advice for a lot of other jobs, but start volunteering your time and, you know, try to learn as much as you can. Like I said, so when I was started out as an intern, I mean, I was nine bucks an hour and, you know, just trying to get way through. And eventually, yeah, I'm making like, I was making, you know, 30 grand, but during harvest, I work, you know, 80 hours a week. Damn. So it's, yeah, it's not something. And it's not like I'm making much more than that now, but if it's something you're really passionate about, then it's can it's uh, just kind of putting in that work to learn certain aspects and way to do it. Yeah, definitely, man. Yeah. Dude, Sterling, thanks so much. This is uh, this has been awesome. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Hey, everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did enjoy the episode, it would mean the world to me if you would leave me a review on iTunes. If you did not enjoy the episode or don't enjoy the show, then you can actually go on my website, halfhourintern.com, and send me an email through there and tell me what you don't like about it, and I will write you back and tell you what a huge jerk you are. And while you're on halfhourintern.com, you can actually also sign up for my newsletter on the center of the homepage, um, which I just recently started. I'm having a lot of fun writing and my mom loves it, which means it must be like super, super good. And if you don't trust my mom's opinion of it, you can actually click on the top of the homepage uh, link that says newsletters, and that will take you to old editions of the newsletter. So you can actually um, look at old editions before signing up to get future editions of the newsletter. Um, As always, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. I really appreciate it. Take care.